This season of The Ready State is sponsored by ButcherBox. Yeah, you know, we have been, we get asked a lot about nutrition. A couple things. One, your tissue quality is directly impacted by the quality of things you eat, unequivocally. And I think we can pretty much boil down all of the uh, information I know about nutrition into one sentence. Don't eat like an asshole. Here's the deal with ButcherBox. We've used it. We love it. You get a box of super beautiful grass-fed or finished beef, free-range chicken, and old-world pork, whatever that is. <laughs> it's like vintage pork. No, no. But here's the deal. I love bacon. You love bacon. Use our link. We'll get you $20 off and get some free bacon. And it's 9 to 11 pounds of meat for $129 a month, which is less than $6 a meal. I mean, forever we have been saying you should probably eat like a vegan plus the best meat you can afford. Vegan plus meat. And guess what? ButcherBox is that. It's, it's amazing. You like meat and want to avoid eating like an asshole and you love free bacon, go to butcherbox.com slash the ready state and you'll get $20 off and free bacon. No brainer. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! We are so excited to welcome Dr. Alex Hutchinson to the podcast today. You know, Kelly and I read a lot of books around our house, um, although often they are not the same books since Kelly loves to read about my feelings exclusively sci fi. <laughs> but um, one great exception to that is the book uh, that Alex wrote called Endure Mind, Body, and the Curiously, Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, which we both read, just came out this year. And we both read um, quickly and enthusiastically. And it was the subject of many dinner conversations. Imagine taking all your favorite treats all your cheat foods, all the things that would disgust your friends that you love secretly, like Miracle Whip, Juliet, on toast. It's actually Kelly who likes That's Miracle Whip. That's not true. I haven't had it in a decade. But he likes or it. Or two. But the idea here is combine all those things up. That's what this book was about. Like I got to read about heat and and hydration and nutrition and how our brains manage and uh, trick us and how we can fool our brains. This conversation with Alex is extraordinary. Can't recommend the book enough, comma, as we get into this conver- this deeper conversation about pain and how our brains work, I think there's a lot here around understanding how the limits of our of our human performance and how much we can tolerate and how much pain and, and discomfort we can take really may just be limited by our brains in the first place. We really hope you enjoy this episode with Alex Hutchinson. Alex, thank you so much for joining Juliet and I. We are, I mean, your book this year is the is the my favorite read so far. We're huge fans. We're so excited to have you on. And I don't know if just because we're nerds and literally I feel like you wrote this book for us personally because it's the things that we talk about at our house that Juliet will get into and we are we love suffering and uh and our friends think we're a little bit strange but I read this book and I was like this is the master key to understanding <laughs> my own personal suffering. <laughs> Basically well, well, you're you know you're validating us as people, Alex. I was going to say you're, you're painting a, a, a gloomy portrait of the the target audience of the book. They're they're all the crazy people who are who love to suffer. But uh, I think there, I think there's some truth to that. Well, you know what's interesting is we always say that we're working in the elite Formula One aspects of human performance, and but our goal is to try to take those lessons and spin them down to like my kids and our friends and people who are recreational athletes. And I think you've done this beautiful job where we have so many people working at the highest levels in these really elite sport fields and thinking critically about it, that you can read your book and literally think to yourself, wow, it's, I, I'm okay. I, there's some things I can do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, I mean, and as, as, as we were discussing before going on air, it's, it's not like there's a, you know, three easy lessons that you can transform your life in. But I think there's, if, if you're willing to think, think hard about it and sort of reflect on, on some of the lessons we can take from elite sport, there, there are some really interesting things you can learn about pushing your own limits. Your book is, is Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And we will link the crap out of it because it's so good. But right now, I feel like <clears throat> if we had to divide people into two categories, we have this, this the great you know, language out there is like this biopsychosocial model, which is, you know, my abilities to perform as a human being are related to my being feel safe, my psychology, the environment. And we have really this non sort of linear, but very complex amalgam of experiences and inputs 
that limits my ability to function at a high level as a human on the one side. And then on the other side, we have this like, you know, beast machine where it's just raw physiology, you know, and it's in, it's always about your muscles and your VO2. And, and we, we're not doing a good job of sort of integrating that into a, co a cogent model. And I think you have done probably the most service to linking these two things. How did you come to understand or why did you want us to talk about endurance? Because we're trying, in shorthand for endurance is pain and my ability to suffer a long time and suffer quickly. How did you get wrapped up in this? Yeah, so my background is as a, as a runner um, and I was a, you know, a reasonably competitive runner. I ran for the Canadian national team. And so I was wrestling with my limits over, you know, on a regular basis over a long period of time. And I very much came from the second camp that you just described. I, I, I'm a sort of hyper-analytical guy. Uh, I, I, I think the world should behave rationally, even if I know it doesn't. I think everything should be mathematical. And so as a, as a runner, it was super frustrating to, uh, to, to, not, to not see the direct correlation between the inputs and the outputs. You know, to, I'd, I'd train, do these kind of workouts, and then I'd get that race. And then so I'd say, well, now I'm doing these workouts, so I should get that race. And it never worked that way. So, so there was this kind of, uh, you know, at, at the start, the, the sort of hope that I could understand the physiology so that I could be, be a faster runner or at least understand why I wasn't a faster runner. Uh, but, but gradually over time, as I sort of dug deeper and deeper into that world, there was the realization that, uh, you know, like some of this stuff is really hard to quantify. And it's maybe it's, it, it's, it's fundamentally complex. And, and if you really, really want to understand endurance and, and you know, and, and human performance more generally, you have to accept that there's going to be some gray areas and some, like you said, this complexity where, you know, one input can produce totally opposite outputs in different people or under different situations or on different days of the week. Well, you know, I'm confronted with this every day because my wife is a two-time world champion and she not only can out-suffer and outwork everyone, she's also this thing called a gamer. As soon as there's a camera or a clock on, she goes to some other plane and I'm like, what, what, what the? Where did this come from? What the hell? And she does it over and over again. Well, I pointed out to Kelly yesterday as I was just finishing reading your book. I'm like, ah, oh, I understand. You know, Alex told me it was because I grew up in Boulder, so that's why I can suffer. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, um, and then Kelly says, well, you know, I I did grow up in the mountains of Bavaria in Germany, so I'm not sure that's why you have an advantage <laughs> on me. You you have an advantage <laughs> on me because you're you're stronger mentally. So I was just you know t working with this this coach Stuart McMillan at Altus Track and Field, and he was talking about this really sets this up. I think um, a really well known sprinter named Andre de Grasse, who is also a fellow Canadian, right? And yeah. he took second in the 100 meters at the last Olympics. And he is just a phenom a talent. And what's interesting, as Stu says, is that he now is coming to really have coming to believe that it can't just be about volume and intensity all the time, that there's these unquantifiable aspects of, of the experience. And he uses, for example, that, that Andre is sort of middle of the pack in training. He never is the fastest. He never, you know, <laughs> is winning. Yeah, but... Man, turn it up, and that guy is is a phenom. And he's like, you can't be beat, you know, except by the greatest sprinter of all time. But you know, at the Olympics, all of a sudden, the the volume turns turns up to ten. In college, check this out, because we'll we'll get to these aspects. But his fastest runs in college, where he set huge records, in between the hundred which he won and the two hundred which he won, he had an hour apart. And his coach was like, all right, just be cool, just be cool, don't mess it up, just you know, be cool. And he ate a <laughs> Subway sandwich. And, uh, and then still performed. And still well. performed. And so now, you know, people are like, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat that like huge Subway sandwich before you sprint. And he's like, but it works. You know, so how do we, un how do, where do we start? Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's, go ahead. I was just going to say that the whole gamer phenomenon, the whole like, why do some people rise to the occasion uh, or, or not? And, or, and why, and, and just day to day variability. Why is one day good and one day bad when you, even when you've tried to isolate all the physical stuff, is I think one of the big sort of outstanding mysteries that people are still trying to figure out. And I know in my, in my experience, when, when I was running well, I, I, I was sort of like that. I trained in the middle of the pack and then I would uh, race well beyond that. And that became part of my personal mythology. And so it was really uh, helpful to up to a point that I, I was confident that when the chips were down and the, and, and, you know, the, the, at the most, in the most important races I would perform, but it became a kind of self-limiting thing because then 
I started to believe, I started to sort of, the mythology implied that I was less talented or less fit than my competitors, but I was just mentally tougher. And so I would be standing at the start line thinking all these people are better than me and all they have to do is run their own race to, to, to be successful. I have to produce a superhuman performance in order to beat them. And then that pressure started to get to me. So I would go in cycles where, uh, and I would get worse because the pressure would get. So like you said, it's, it's, it's this super complexity where anytime you try and make a general rule about, you know, this should help you and that, you know, the, the subway sandwich will relax you and therefore it helps you or whatever. Anytime you try and codify it, I think you, you find the exceptions and you find them pretty quickly. Yeah, well, I, I think we can all relate to, I think, both you and then in the forward by Malcolm Gladwell talk about the anomalous race. And I think any of us who've ever done anything in athletics can relate to that phenomenon. You know, what was the deal? Was it that I drank a slushy beforehand or I had a rest day or had this? And then you really do go down that path. Um, so I, you know, personally totally relate to that. Uh, moving on, um, Samuel Makora, who you talk about many times in this book, but he, and you quote his definition of endurance in the book, which I loved, and it's the struggle to continue against the mounting desire to stop. And when I read that, I thought, how is it that some people can seem to override that desire to stop and others can't? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, isn't that the there's, ultimate there's, question? That's the big question. And it's like, you know, I should say, like, talking about this, this definition of endurance is like, I started writing this book about endurance without really having defined it in my mind. And then at some point, I, you know, I'd been researching for ages, and I thought, okay, in, in order to make sense of it, I have to actually figure out what it is I'm talking about. And that's the definition I ended up with, which is way more, way broader than what I started, you know, in my, in my mind, I had this sort of definition of endurance as like running a marathon. But Fundamentally, when you think about what is endurance, it's like, and I think you can make a good case that that that's a good definition. The struggle to continue against a mounting desire or a mounting desire to stop, it's actually a very broad thing, and it, it you know it, it it encompasses the you know day to day life, the you know whether it's work or social situations. It also encompasses uh, not you know it's not just you know endurance events, all sorts of sports, all sorts of activities, and I you know I think that. When you think of it that way with that definition, what you understand is that it's fundamentally a mental battle that, of course, the physiology informs that mental battle. I mean, what what's what's going on in your muscles matters. But the difference between me, if I run a 5K tomorrow and if I run another 5K next week, I'm not going to run the identical times. And it's not going to be for the, the, the difference isn't going to be so much that I got less fit or more fit in that week or that the temperature was slightly different. It's going to be more about uh, how well I was able to to struggle. Um, and, and, and so that, that, you know, I think that's, that's the, the, the essence of endurance really. Do you think, um, you know, I, I think it's maybe an easy association to, to see the relationship between pain and that really incredibly subjective experience of discomfort. And then, and you can almost wrap in persistent pain and chronic pain in there. And then, and then this exposure to really high levels of discomfort, for example, we, we like to mention that if in some of our elite athlete friends, if you teleported into their body at the moments where they were going as hard as they could, you would die. You would wither underneath the, the, physio, the physiologic torment that that person was going through. That they're just saying, oh, yeah, this is just, you know, minute 20. You know, this is, this is just, this is typical. And, you know, I think what's interesting is if you were really curious about some of your experiences around the fact that really my ability to endure is really my ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, you know, what we've often said is whoever can work the hardest wins. And what we know is that there's suffering linked to that, you know, and you, I think you call this pain perception, but it's almost just like, you know, people, we, we haven't done a good job of figuring out how to increase people's ability to manage this. And I feel like this, you have done a good job of giving us some, some breadcrumbs about ways that we can improve our ability to manage or increase our pain perception tolerance. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to what, what Juliet asked before I sort of rambled off about something totally different, which was, uh, you know, what explains the difference between people? Um, you know, this, in a sense, this is the, the classic kind of nature nurture question where the, the answer is, is always both, right? Like this, you know, there's no doubt that some people are just born differently, you know, wired differently than, than others. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and in fact, as a sort of aside, um, you know, w when we talk about trying to get people active, like forget performance, just trying to get people to be healthy and like, why are you not doing 30 minutes of exercise, uh, you know, my moderate exercise a day 
given the evidence that it's, you know, how, how incredible it is for your health. It's like, for me, it's incomprehensible, but maybe I'm wired in a way that, uh, you know, the way some, what some researchers call a, a benign masochism. Maybe I just kind of enjoy that <laughs> discomfort a little bit. And, and maybe that's something that I'm totally, that all of us who, who are in this space of, you know, physical activity and fitness, we're in this space because we happen to get a kick out of it that is fundamentally different from the person who is totally sedentary. And they're like, I can't understand why you crazy people do this because maybe they have a totally different subjective experience than we do. So I, I do think it's fair to, to, you know, without any particular evidence, but to assume that like all other traits, there's some, there's some differences, but for me, the really interesting thing in, in, you know, when I started looking into the research on pain, you know, pain tolerance, pain, uh, pain sensitivity, um, is the evidence that it changes that we, you, you get it, like you were saying, exposure changes you, the way you perceive pain. Uh, you get used to it. And it's like, if you take someone who's going from the couch to a 5k, uh, you know, over the course of three months or six months or whatever, of course their body changes. Of course their heart gets harder, uh, gets stronger. Of course their blood vessels get more flexible and so on. But, uh, their ability to tolerate discomfort, like, or as you put it, to be, to be comfortable being uncomfortable also changes. They learn to push themselves a little harder. And there's, there's some, you know, a pretty good body of research now that shows that this, this tolerance ebbs and flows. So it increases as you train, as you submit to discomfort, you get better at tolerating pain, not just the pain that you're used to. If, if you're a runner, you don't just get better at tolerating the pain of running. You get better at tolerating the pain of dunking your hand in an ice bucket, which is totally different. And let's say, so someone like me, I've been running for, you know, a couple decades now. That doesn't mean that I've learned to tolerate pain and that's it. I never have to think about it again because they, they've done studies showing that this, this pain tolerance, your ability to tolerate other forms of pain ebbs and flows over the course of a competitive season. Your, your pain tolerance is best when you're approaching a big competition. It's worse during the off season. So it's something that you, it's, it's, you know, it's the, 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 the rock that keeps rolling down the hill. You have to keep pushing it up. You can't just sort of say, now I've learned to tolerate pain that you've like reached the top limit and you're like check i'm done here yeah <laughs> but it would be great um, if the exercise was like that yeah. too it's like i got healthy when i was 22 and then i never had to exercise again no it doesn't work that way and my pain, i'm full um, i'm full of pain we um <laughs> i really like the idea that you, it feels like that my experience can be trained and modulated one of the examples that I, i've run into is that one of the world record free divers lives in the bahamas and he talks about when he's around his family and his wife supports him and he's very, very relaxed, he dives great. And when he is stressed and he's, fig he's, self he's figured it out, when I'm stressed, man, my tolerance goes down, my brain doesn't work, I just can't dive well at all. You know, if, he's, if he has a fight with his family or something's going on, I really feel like that's almost the cue for understanding from people who have pain and they say, well, I've been doing this my whole life. Nothing's changed. And we, when we ask them what's changed, they're like, well, someone's sick in my family, work is really hard, that the brain sometimes sensitizes us and makes us more susceptible to, you know, things that we were tolerating. And, and, and that's sort of one of the mechanisms we understanding chronic physical pain is that my brain suddenly is like, hey, you know, we're, we're sensitized, you haven't slept, you're inflamed, whatever it is. You know, do, and I feel like I'm hearing you say that a little bit around, you know, the endurance suffering capacities of people. Yeah, definitely. And first of all, let me just say, uh, on the topic of freediving, uh, those guys blow my mind. I, I, can, I like that was the single most surprising thing in the book is uh, understanding the physiology of, of guys like William Truebridge. It's just like, yeah. it's ludicrous. It's absolutely well, yeah, ludicrous. Yeah. And that those guys just, you know, shallow water blackout, like below the surface and get saved by their divers. <laughs> and then they keep doing it again. I was like, that is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like 15 minutes later, though. Like, okay, yeah, like, let's go. Let's go. I'm yeah. good. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of the question of, of, uh, like, yeah, the, this, the, this role of like other, your mental state, for example. So one of the big turning points for me was, uh, maybe or at least sort of clarifying moments was the study, the first study I saw by Samuel Marcora, who you mentioned earlier, who's really, in, you know, interesting researcher these days, is he did this study that sounds so ridiculously obvious, um, which was that he, he mental, he had people do this sort of computer task, which is very simple. You, you, you know, there's arrows or letters on the screen and you're clicking buttons. It's not hard, but it requires focus. He had them do that for 90 minutes so that they were a little bit mentally fatigued, uh, not physically fatigued, but mentally fatigued, and then measured their, their, uh, time to exhaustion in a cycling test. And it was, it was worse. They, they, this mental fatigue made them worse. And what was interesting is their perception of effort 
was higher right from the start. So as soon as they get on the bike, they're like, oh, cycling at this power output is six out of 10. Whereas if they weren't mentally tired, it's four out of 10. And that's just, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's one of those things like real life is complicated. So in the lab, try and just make things very, very simple. And, and the lab, of course, it doesn't really reflect what's going on in real life, but it illustrates how these things that are totally subtle, like playing a very dumb computer game, like the equivalent of Pac-Man for, for, for 90 minutes, um, it, it totally alters your perception of what your body is doing in a very fundamental way that, that has a big impact on your performance. And few of us sit around playing Pac-Man for 90 minutes uh, these days. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I, I, I don't. It's, but, yeah, it's but, Fortnite. Yeah, actually, it's a lot of us. It's Fortnite. We're playing Fortnite now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but we all do. We all have things going on in our lives, like, uh, you know, whether it's family things or work-related things that are affecting us in ways that we're, we're maybe not perceiving, uh, and, and whether it's or, or even sports-related things. or Like, life is complicated, and, and if and I, I can think of, you know, a dozen things that I've been thinking about in the last 24 hours that probably stress me out more than, than playing Pac-Man would. Uh, so it's, uh, to me, those sorts of, those sorts of lab studies, uh, they, they, they help me as a, as a sort of natural skeptic say, come on, I, you really have to take these things seriously. And you have to understand that even though it's hard to quantify life stresses, it's hard to quantify whether you had a fight with your, your family or whatever, um, these things are going to affect performance and they're going to alter the way that there's no like independent reality of how much discomfort you're in. All of that is interpret, you know, interp an interpretive role that your brain plays and, and your brain is influenced by all these other factors. My brain sucks. Yeah. Well, you know, that made me think that, um, you know, Kelly and I often, it doesn't work out for us to train until the late afternoon. Um, although I thought that was a big selling point for just getting up and doing it because, you know, I'm sure we all know that feeling of working an entire day where you have done zero, zero physical activity, but you still feel exhausted. Um, and that's probably not the best time to train. <laughs> or, or uh, I now look at it, after reading yeah. this book, I'm like, wow, I'm so mentally exhausted. This is, I'm getting such good training right now, even though I'm suffering <laughs> anymore. Wattage is the same. Output is 11. But, uh, you know, I think I'm like, I'm, I'm doing brain resistance training. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. So one of the things I thought was so interesting about this book, and because it seems to me so intuitive that the brain is involved in this whole process of endurance. Um, but I thought it was so interesting that it w really wasn't until Tim Noakes um, hits the stage in the 90s. Um, you know, up till then, it seemed like it was VO2 max and all sort of physiological um, factors like VO2 max and lactate threshold. It wasn't until Tim Noakes comes around and talks about the whole theory of the central governor um, that that the idea even that the brain is involved in endurance was sort of dropped. And then I know Makora has also come along and expanded on that idea. And he basically says it's perceived exertion. Um, it's, it's really sort of like perceived exertion is kind of the final arbiter of what's going on with endurance. Um, where, you know, where are we with all this? Is there any kind of consensus in the community about how it is the brain, you know, it seems like everyone now agrees based on all of this research that the brain is heavily involved, but is there any sort of professional consensus or is it still all over the map? Yeah, that's, this is an interesting question. So first I should say I, that I, I, I'm probably guilty of, of, of kind of oversimplifying the history of mm -hmm. exercise physiology a little bit that, I mean, if you talk to someone in 1950, they, they wouldn't have said, oh, my brain is totally irrelevant. So it's, it's like everyone sort of understood it, that the brain was involved, but they put it in a separate box and said, we're, we're going to understand the body as a machine. And yeah, of course we know that motivation matters too and, and things like that. Uh, and so we had, you know, physiologists had these, these models that even though they knew, of course, that, 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 you know, the brain is going to play a role, the, the, the models didn't incorporate the brain. So it was, it was hard to, to quantify or to really understand how the brain played a role. So Noakes, Noakes was a real spur to, to getting people to more explicitly think about the role of the brain. Um, yeah, but, but I think, you know, we, I guess I just want to be, you know, uh, not, not make the sort of no. claim that yeah, everyone in the that, 20th century probably, was an idiot. That's probably yeah. my mistake because I do know you no, no, a no, bunch no. of examples throughout the book of people talking about it earlier. Yeah. I just thought no, it was I, so I say, interesting I that, that it sort of like came to the like forefront of the discussion more recently. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 definitely true, uh, and that's definitely yeah, it's just it, people get a little touchy about this because this this leads into the second question of, about whether there's consensus these days, and uh, you know I, I kind of made the semi-controversial claim in the book that uh, there's various warring factions out there who who absolutely hate each other's guts. Um, and as you can sort of see on Twitter on a regular basis, uh, but but I, I think the, the the underlying 
points that a lot of people are making are very similar now. So I think uh, the scientists in the field would deny that there's any sort of consensus right now. Um, and that, and there, there certainly are some some sort of differences of opinion in terms of how the brain plays a role or what the what the mechanisms are. But I think there's actually a pretty there's an emerging underlying consensus that as as you're saying that that kind of your perception of effort is really a crucial factor. Now, uh, do you stop because there's too much lactate in your legs or do you stop because your brain thinks there's too much lactate in your legs? In a sense, that's a kind of semantic argument. Um, either way, it's the lactate that's uh, that's the the ultimate cause. But if it's the brain's dis interpretation of that signal, then it leaves some room for uh, kind of uh, for understanding how your mental state can affect it. Because in some in some cases, maybe you're willing to tolerate a little more lactate than others. So so in that sense, I think most people, if you if you framed it. To them in the right way, they would agree that yeah, your perception of effort is really what's going to determine whether you speed up or slow down, or you know, do another rep or whatever the case may be in in uh, in, in your activity. We um, <clears throat> I want to talk to you all day about this. You know, one uh, even going back to the free diving, one of my favorite movies in the whole world is a movie called The Big Blue, and it was a uh, Luc Besson, and it's a, a rivalry about free divers between Enzo Molinari and Jacques Maillot. And there's a moment where, you know, it's obviously this, this crazy, you know, free diving world that they live in. And, and one of the, the protagonists has a bad dive, you know, and, and the Frenchman is like, don't worry, some days the sea just doesn't want you. And he's like, it's never the sea. It's Mama Roberto, that stupid actress, you know, and, and really, <laughs> and even then I thought I saw that in the fifth grade and I was like, what? Like, you know, his life is like impacting his breath, you know, his, his, his experience there. Do you feel like, because there are, there've got to be some simple guidelines here because it, it you know we say it's about the brain and my my brain's sort of ability to buffer all these signals and my training of that but what's the role of sleep that's got to be an easy th thing like it seems like if i'm sleep deprived my brain doesn't handle this tolerance very well is that something we yeah. could wrap our heads around and say yes sleep matters for, for sure and 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 they can show that pretty simply with with in experiments showing that your physical capacity doesn't change with relatively moderate sleep deprivation, um, but your perception of effort changes. And so, uh, at, you know, in some cases, if it's life or death and you've had sleep deprivation, you're able, you, you're motivated enough that you're able to fight through that elevated perception of effort. But for the most part, if you, if you go and try, uh, to run a race when you're sleep deprived, it's just, it's going to be harder and it's going to feel harder right from the start. And so, so sleep, I would say, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, uh, yeah, like of all the things we could possibly talk about, like sleep and eating well, being, being properly fueled, although we could, we could talk for you know, several <laughs> yeah, weeks know, about whole, what yeah. properly fuel, fueled <laughs> what matters. But it, I mean, let's just say that getting enough food at least and, and getting enough sleep, I think, are we, we, we can put in the very small column of things we really don't have much doubt about. And, but there's also things like, like again, as as general and as complex it is, there are, there are things we can say like, if you can, it, it, you know, in your interpretation of pain, for example, if you can strip away the emotional content of that pain, if you can interpret pain as information, then you're a step ahead of the game. That 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 you're gonna you're gonna, you know, the ideal is right. You don't want all your 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 emotions to be dictating how you how you respond or, or you don't want fear to be dictating how you respond to, to, you know, a, a feeling or a, a pain. And so if you, if you can get in the habit of just feeling it as see, seeing pain as a, as a source of information that, Hey, you can't, you know, this, this feeling indicates that I'm going to have to stop soon if I keep this up. One it's not our, like you can, you ignore it, but you just change your perception of it. Yeah, one of our, one of our good friends had a shirt that said he was an endurance runner of Western States, Brian McKenzie, he had a shirt that said pain is my companion. <laughs> no, I, and I really I appreciate that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, it, it, this subjective experience that I literally should be able to look down and say, hey, a Wolverine is gnawing on my leg. It's fine. It's information. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to go up, gonna keep going so up easy, the hill. That's right. Well, you know, and I know that the food thing, we could go deep and dark on that. But um, Kelly and I were reminded of our friend Jimmy Chin. And I don't know if you saw the documentary Meru. But I think, you know, they managed to climb up to the top of Meru by sharing a third of a cliff bar over, what was it, like 72 hours or something? They each had, they had a, on, they failed the top, 
And then they had three days of down climbing and each of them had a third of a cliff bar a day. Then they got to the bottom and were like, oh, our food's here. And there was no food there because it was buried. Buried in 10 feet of snow. So they got another 18-hour walkout with no food. And it's one of those things where you think, this is the the brain. Like, my body, I'm going to either starve to death on this mountain. No, I won't starve to death, but I'm going to climb down. I'm not properly fueled, but I still have to function. And I think that's that really good example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and, and sometimes the circumstances help or can be helpful in, in clarifying the mind, <laughs> as it were. But uh, for, you know, most of us fortunately don't have, or fortunately or unfortunately, don't have the 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 external environment that makes that choice quite so clear. Like, so so it becomes a skill that you have to to develop and work on and say. And and you know, it's like going back to the Wolverine chewing on your leg. It's like. Um, it, it's going to be useful if you can if you can disengage from that kind of pain. But the other thing is, you know that if there's a wolverine chewing on your leg, that that actually is bad. It's going to have <laughs> negative consequences. The the pain that most of us are capable in, of inflicting on ourselves in let's say an endurance event, it you know barring some unusual thing happening, it's not it's not going to have any negative repercussions. No. Like what is there to fear about that pain? You you even if you tr- if I try to run myself unconscious, I can't. So all you have to fear is you know it, you, when you when you dig down deep enough, it's like what am I scared of? It's that I'm not going to perform as well as I hope, or I'm going to be embarrassed, or something like that. And those are those are terrible reasons to to slow down. Tell us about about the role of positive self talk. I thought this was a really interesting section of the book. And, and, and yeah, I, I'm going to just I want to back back that because you know how we perceive when it gets uncomfortable and the kinds of things that, cause we're one of the, the basis of this conversation today is hopefully we walk out and people are like, okay, sleep is something I can try to control that will improve my body's ability to manage discomfort. But also this turns out to be one of the really interesting pieces and things I think we do intuitively around like with our kids, but we are terrible as adults around giving ourselves permission and, and positive self-talk. Yeah. So this is, you know, so first of all, I would say if you told me five years ago, I'd read a book where the sort of the the crowning part of the book is, is, is a a praise of, of praise, basically of self-talk of, of, I would have said, Oh, come on. You know, like what, what did my brain turn to mush? That's ridiculous. Like Carl Rogers was right. (laughs) It's, it's, it's yeah, exactly. So I, I, this was this sort of took me by surprise, but I, I did come away thinking this is actually probably the most the number one kind of actionable thing that I took away from 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 looking into this area is this idea that your internal monologue really matters because and it goes back to this idea uh, that the ultimate arbiter of your of your limits is your perception of how hard you're working, your perception of effort, and it, so it's it's if you want to talk about and there's a million signals that, that play into that, but let's, let's just say it's your, you know, your lactate levels or something. It, it's not, you don't reach your limits because of a specific lactate level. It's because of your brain's interpretation of that lactate level. And your brain's interpretation is going to be affected by other things. If you're, if you're in a positive optimistic mood, then you're going to say, I can keep going a little longer despite this level of lactate. And if you're in a, you know, if you're in my head, you're going to say you're doomed, you failed again, you moron, you know, the lactate, this, this lactate level indicates that you're not going to be able to hit your pace. So you might as well just slow down because you're a loser or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but, but really, uh, you know, the, the internal monologue that in a lot of people's heads, you know, two thirds of the way through a, a marathon <laughs> would be, uh, uh, pr- pretty, pretty negative for most people. And so, okay. You could say, well, then, therefore, you know, turn that smile upside down, and everything will be uh, will be fine. And I and and I'm not willing to take that on faith. But there've been a, a a bunch of interest, or not a bunch, but there've been maybe three interesting studies lately that take this to the lab and try it out and say, okay, what happens if we have have people do an endurance test, let's say a cycling test, then we give half of them training in motivational self talk, which involves identifying what they say, what what is their internal monologue, identifying the negative stuff figuring out some alternatives that work for them that are positive. So instead of saying, you started too hard again, you're going to, you're going to blow up. You, you figure out maybe it's like, keep pushing. You've trained for this. This is what it's all about. Maybe that's, you have to find something that works for you. And then you apply it. And what they find is, first of all, yes, it works. It, uh, the people who get the motivational self-talk training instead of some sort of other sort of psychological training that's, that's not supposed to work, uh, they improve their performance. So that that's number one. But what, you know, it's always hard to separate out the placebo kind of effect. But what's interesting is in these studies is they also find 
So for example, the people who've got the self-talk are able to push themselves harder. So for instance, they're able to push their core temperature a little bit higher. So they are digging deeper into their physiological reserves, but their perception of effort stays the same. So they've, they've managed to alter the relationship between how hard their body is working and how hard they feel they're working by changing their internal monologue. So that's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I realize I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but to me, this is a really kind of profound finding that, that you can change how hard effort feels based on, uh, you know, the, the story you're telling yourself or the, 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 the words you're telling yourself. So I think that's, and I think that's an absolutely a general thing that, again, that's like, it's good for, mar- I think it's, it's, you know, good for marathons. It's also good for, you know, going to a cocktail party and convincing yourself to talk to someone or whatever, what, you know, whatever <laughs> other situations there are in, in, in your life. Calling my mom. I got this. I can do this. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. great. We, You're uh, trained to dial this number. <laughs> yes. We actually talk about this in our daily training with our athletes. We, we coach lots of people and we just watch their faces. As soon as the intensity gets hard, we watch their faces start to express these ugly pain faces. And I'm like, why are you giving that information away? And what are you automatically conjoining between this, this experience of what's happening and then your, your reaction to it. And we literally make them smile or I'm like, and even from a competitive advantage, I'm like, don't give that information away that you're suffering. Look yeah. next to me. And when you smile at me and I know you're dying, like I'm going to kill you because I'm smiling. Well, and you know, my, my high school rowing coach, and I don't think she realized why she was doing this, but she always taught us to have like a complete, like, quiet face when we exercised and we're in races. And I still do that to this day. In fact, sometimes people are like, wow, your face is so quiet. And, uh, and I think that's part of, part of the whole, even, even though you're like a duck below the water, like yeah. your feet are going like, that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what, quiet face. it's interesting. You mentioned the experience and that it's a practice behavior. There's a local physician named Doage here in the Bay area who is a specialist in chronic pain and neuroplasticity. And he, um, has written a book called how the brain rewires itself or how the brain heals itself. And what we're seeing is that the brain has this incredible and immense capacity to rewire and reshape and sort of uh, integrate some of these experiences. And when he addresses and works with people who are in real chronic pain, when people are in this moment and they think they can't bear it, right? It's never going to end. It's going to get worse. They can't stand it. His first is this, his first intervention is this real, psychological, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy where he's, you have to develop a self-talk of like, I've got this. My back is a perfect ball of light. I'm going to manage this. And that's the, the gateway out of sort of disjoining the relationship between what my brain thinks is happening and what's actually happening. Yeah. And, and, you know, like if I was in that situation, I can just imagine how unsatisfying I would find that answer initially. <laughs> yeah, you just because need to it's talk like, about you, your needs. It needs, it needs to be happy. Yeah, you, you don't want to hear it because that's never going to be a quick fix, right? Like it's always going to take a long time and the, the, the progress is going to be slow. And the people who've gone through that then are, are able to vouch that, oh my God, it changed my life. But it's, I was like after two months or whatever like that. It's so it's, it's challenging. It's, and, and, it, and that's where I think like for someone like me again, it's like seeing some of the studies that you, you need to be have a reason to believe that it's going to be worthwhile before you're able to kind of invest the the time. I mean, everyone's different. But like I know for me, it's like having some reason to say, OK, no, no, no this isn't just like, you know, someone's idea that's it's been tested. It's been tested. It works. It's worth investing the time because I think uh, so. I mean, that's that. And that's kind of the the transition that I or the, the voyage that I went on in, in researching this book is, is t- taking a bunch of stuff that really I was skeptical about at the beginning and, and being convinced that actually there's something here. It's not a, it's not a quick fix. It's not an easy fix, but it's, it's something important. Um, I actually have a, just thinking about like the, the, the self-talk, I, I, I've been giving some talks about it uh, or about the, the general topic and mentioning these studies on self-talk. And at a talk a couple of weeks ago, one of the guys in the audience came up and introduced himself and he was the lead author of one of the studies on self-talk that I had, uh, oh. <laughs> that I'd been talking about. And, and he told me this great story that, so in his study, I think he had 10 cyclists and nine of them with, with self-talk got dramatically better. And one of them didn't, and they couldn't figure out, there's this just variability in humans like we were talking about. So for whatever reason, this one guy just, they, and they kept trying it and he was a competitive mountain biker. He tried it and tried it. He couldn't get better with self-talk. And then about six months after the study, uh, the cyclist sent an email to the researcher saying, Hey, I figured it out. I figured out how to make self-talk work for me. And what he had done is all those negative thoughts that would flood through his head, which he'd been unable to stop. 
uh, whenever someone was about to pass him, he'd get all these negative thoughts. And he figured, well, if they're so, if negative self-talk is so bad, I'll just say them to the other person. And so when someone was about to pass him, he'd start yelling out all the, all the thoughts in his head <laughs> saying, you're worthless. There's no way you could do this. You're not going to make it all the way to the finish. It's way too hard. And he said, it works every time. They just drop off. They can't believe it. So he's, he's discovered the negative power of self-talk. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. the secret weapon that, well, and it's almost that they don't like, like to like tell you. Letting it out of his brain and then he can move on, you know? <laughs> and just, yeah, he's t- Oh, it's so yeah. good. That's uh, Jay Star. You're so dead. The next time we oh train. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Instead. You're so slow. You look like you're suffering. You suck. It's gonna be it's so just, good. It's gonna be about the switchback. It's a switchback. <laughs> um, so you know, it's. I think we've established that athletes obviously do feel pain. But I thought it was interesting. Um, you referenced a couple of studies that show when athletes are studied against non-athletes, they have a higher pain tolerance. Um, so say I'm a recreational athlete with a poor pain tolerance. That's obviously going to be a limiting factor for me. Um, Obviously, self-talk seems to be a way, but are there other ways to people can think about increasing their pain tolerance? Yeah, I think there's there's a, a so there's there's let's say there's the direct and the indirect. So the direct is, you know, to get better at dealing with pain, suffer, right? Like yeah, <laughs> the, exposure, the, right? Exposure therapy. And there's a great study from England that that where they 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 went to all sorts of trouble to design two different training programs that would produce the identical physical effects. One of them was a high intensity uh, kind of interval training program. The other was a more moderate, uh, long duration program. So one, one involved short bouts of extreme discomfort and the other didn't it was just sort of moderate. And they both, they produced the same physical changes. So same VO two max changes, same lactate threshold changes, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, one group the the, the interval group improved their performance far more and their, the individual improvements in performance were related to their, they, they were also the only group that improved their pain tolerance in, in a totally separate, uh, like a tourniquet pain test, squeezing the, the circulation of the arm. So it's like the people who got better at dealing with pain at, at, at increase their pain tolerance were the people who suffered more. And they're the people who also improved their performance. So I think it, in a sort of, uh, a, a general sense, if you want to get better, you have to, you have to, get, you have to suffer sometimes. And it's like, uh, it, it's it's great if you want to get healthy and you want to go out and just do a, a few jogs a week or whatever that the case may be. But but uh, I think there's the the, the the old debate about like is, are intervals better or long run or long exercise better whatever. Physiologically, I think you know I think a mix is good. But I think if you're if you don't have some situations where you're pushing yourself and asking yourself some pretty tough questions. Uh, you're missing out on an opportunity to expand your 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 pain tolerance. I live in a house full of three women. I, I get to ask myself that every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're just going to take a little side break here and uh, get some insight from our good friend, Erin Kafaro. If you don't know her, she is a two-time Olympic gold medalist in rowing. Yeah, and rowing is code for Super the most condensed, hateful thing you can do. So every time I row, and Erin does a lot of programming for me, but every time I row, I think of Erin Kafaro. What ends up happening, if you've ever been on a rowing machine and you pull, think to yourself, Hey, 145. Like I am a great. I pulled a 145 for one stroke. Like I am really great. And then I always think, huh, Aaron pulled a 144 for six kilometers straight. And I think to myself, who has an extra leg? Who you don't need it. You just have lungs for legs. It's not possible. She is uh, has a really interesting take and relationship with this condensed high level uh, discomfort. And uh, I think she's going to shed some light on some things. Let's hear what she has to say. So let's just get one thing straight. I do feel pain um, and I feel it very, uh, very intensely. Um, but I have created a relationship with um, my pain. So I think that was probably one of the big advantages and, and things that I developed as a professional athlete when I was training. I definitely had some great mentors such as Kelly and Juliet that um, kind of brought the best it will just highlighted that for me that I, that that was not normal because you know you don't know you're not normal until someone points it out. <laughs> I definitely remember doing a that 6k just to kind of give a frame of reference it was the Olympic year um in 2012 and we would do 6000 meter tests um even though our race races are 2000 meters. So um 2000 meters is you know a little bit longer than a mile. And those are, those are pretty brutal. That's like white hot pain. Um, the 6,000 meter tests are just, they're just kind of like a red, long, 
deep burn um, because there's there's no escape from or relief from the pain it's, it, and you know you're in it for at least uh, 20 minutes. So um, yeah, I remember getting ready for the test and obviously I, I had been training on the national team for about six years at that point. And so I, my relationship with pain is, uh, you know, became pretty familiar that with rowing, it's, it's a very simple sport. You just put the blade in and then you take it out. Definitely it's, it's technical, um, because there's a lot of moving, um, things such as water, the boat, you know, other people in your boat, you have to coordinate with, but, um, what really separates a good rower from a great rower is those that can, um, just push, push the limits of their pain. And, um, that intrigued me. And obviously, you know, I, I found this sport that was kind of made for me. Um, so I found rowing and here I am on the national team, my second, um, you know, Olympics sitting there and, um, into the 6,000 meters. And I distinctly remember, um, probably about, I would say 500 meters into this test. I remember the pain, um, kind of coming on and, and, that was my cue that I was, that was where I should maintain. I, uh, I remember one time Kelly telling me, go to the point of discomfort and then just play with it and stay there and um, kind of be curious about it. And so that's what I did. I mean, and that's what I kind of made um, pain a game for me. So I would go to the point where it felt uncomfortable. Um, I would see how long I could kind of maintain or sometimes, you know, back off a little bit because it was a little too much, but it was never, it was never a question of stopping. So pain never really made me want to stop. It was just, uh, something I could be curious about. So, um, yeah, I, I think in this test is like perfectly, uh, um, a perfect example of, um, how you just kind of, you start and it's, it's gonna suck. Like it's always gonna suck. And it's just, there you're going to get it in the beginning you're going to be excited and then the suck comes right away and for me it was about 500 meters in um so but that was kind of comforting like i knew that was going to happen i expected it to happen and it just goes on and on and for about i don't really remember much until probably the last 2000 meters of this test. Um, and I was just maintaining, still doing this little jockeying game of, can I push it a little bit harder? Uh, nope, nope. Pull back, you know, and just try to stay in shooting distance. Um, and just playing with the level of pain, but 2000 meters to go, it started, shit started getting real. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of the girls around me, um, we were pretty tired at this point cause we were deep into the training cycle. And I remember a lot of the girls around me just starting to drop off. They were starting to, to slow down. And I looked around and I looked at pain as something separate from me. It looked to me like these girls were suffering. I could kind of see it on their faces a little bit and I could definitely see their screens. So it, and I, you can feel, you can, you can feel suffering, you know? And so I felt them right next to me, but it didn't feel like suffering to me. Like I, I was still having um, I don't know if fun is a good word <laughs> to put here, but, you know, I was still kind of like having fun with it uh, and still curious about it. And I could look at it from uh, an outside perspective, actually, and just and be like, OK, that looks miserable what they're doing. Maybe I can do it a different way. And so, again, I was just maintaining, trying to push it a little bit. Oh, is that too much? Nope, actually, I can maintain that. And so, you know, I just continued to just play this little uh, pain game, if you will, until uh, the very end. And, you know, when it's the sprint, when you're at the end of something, it's that's like the most liberating feeling. That's my favorite part of the race, my favorite part of uh you know, any project that I'm on, it's is the end because you can really just open up and let everything go. And um, pain is all relative because you can see the finish line. So good luck, everybody. And uh, go get yourself some pain. All right, let's get back to Alex. 
So, you know, uh, speaking of our house and speaking of suffering, um, Kelly and I are avid sauna users. We have a sauna in our backyard. And uh, thanks to our mutual friend, Laird Hamilton, uh, Kelly got this idea to bring our assault bike into the sauna <laughs> and turn it up to, what, 180 degrees and then force me to do intervals in there, which he lovingly calls Restrepo. Um, and I've only done it once, and I thought it was truly awful and one of the worst things I've ever done. And then I, I worried that maybe in reading your book that you had proved Kelly right because, you know, when you were talking about uh, heat, which is such a big player in endurance, that, you know, it seemed like you were saying that just exposure to heat wasn't enough to adapt, that you actually had to suffer in the heat. So, um, you know, are you going to go ahead and say that doing Restrepo would actually make us more heat adapted than just sitting in the sauna. <laughs> well, 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 well. I, 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 I did say that in the book. I will say I'm actually working on an article about heat right now, trying to dig dig into the, the research. And this is a hot, hot area uh, of, of research of trying to understand uh, not just what heat can do for you in terms of getting ready to, you know, perform in hot conditions, but just to increase your fitness. And there's definitely a place for passive uh, passive heat, whether it's hot tub uh, or saunas. There's actually some great research just coming out of Finland in the last few months. That's right. A study of like Finnish men, a couple thousand, they've been followed for 25 years, and it, it's like those who take more than three saunas a week have all, you know lower risk of like everything, you know, dementia, uh, uh, heart disease, uh, all sorts of things. So uh, I, I think if you decide to lounge in the sauna periodically, you you, you can give yourself a uh, uh, permission that that is doing some good. Uh, <laughs> in, in terms of in terms of exercise, you know, sustained exercise performance in the heat, I think you probably need to do at least some, but uh, but probably maybe not as much as we once thought, because the, the the truth is, if you're doing those those intervals you're doing in the sauna, they're not going to be as uh, they're not going to be as good as the intervals you do in good conditions. So no, yeah, it's a hundred percent like novel exposure for just suffering. Like that's, yeah, we look yeah. at it as, <laughs> and what we do. So our, our protocol is 15 seconds of, you've got to be above like 15 to 1600 Watts. Like you just got to blow up and then you just, you just rotate through. And what's amazing is that every single time all of us hit a threshold, we are like, we can't take it anymore. This is what death feels like. This is hell. My legs are burning. You can't even straighten your legs out. And then you open the door, jump in the pool. And in two seconds, you're like, oh, I'm okay. It's totally fine. And I think that's what's really, that's even us who've been exposed to it and like this idea of being uncomfortable. It's shocking for us every time when the noise just literally comes silence. When you just remove those stimuluses, you just stop and you're like, oh, wait, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, that's well, a powerful. Like, it's one of those lessons you don't want to learn that lesson twice a week, but you want to learn. No, no, yeah, that's right. I, I, <laughs> hope, uh, I hope next time you come to the Bay Area, we can have you over for some restrepo. Well, you know, I was <laughs> gonna say it sounds so wonderful. Oh yeah, yeah. I love it. You love it. It's great every day for the next ten years. But <laughs> one of the um, really current, I think, uh, popular interests in human physiology right now is breathing, and we're seeing. I think Wim Hof has really popularized this, and then. All of a sudden, we're we're got Laird Hamilton doing his really his dynamic apnea in the pool, really getting people high comfortable with high CO two levels, and all of a sudden we we my friends like Brian McKenzie have really gone back in and were like, oh, we understand yoga differently now that being comfortable with high CO two levels makes us our brains a little bit more you know comfortable with this discomfort. And I I really thought it was interesting in the book where you talk about putting people on the treadmill and then all of a sudden they would kind of shut off their oxygen and their CO2 would spike and how their brains interpret that as an immediate threat versus people who'd been exposed to that a little bit more didn't have the same reaction, didn't have the same literally fundamental fight or flight response that these other people had. Yeah. So that's, I'm glad you, you, you brought that up because it, because it reminds me to, to complete uh, what I was uh, meant to say earlier. You asked me about different ways of, uh, uh, you know, improving your pain tolerance and, you know, aside from raw exposure, the other thing I was going to say, which is, uh, you know, and, and if you have a sort of buzzword alarm, that's going to sound, uh, I'll say mindfulness, um, be, because it gets at this idea of the sort of non-judgmental awareness of, of unpleasant sensations. And so there's the study you're talking about, which was at, uh, at UC San Diego, 
where they put like Navy SEALs and uh, elite adventure racers and people like that in a brain scanner and and watch their brains as as they sort of restricted their breathing. Um, so they they found these really distinctive signatures of of people act to the sensation of discomfort. They were able to say that this is just information. It's like, okay, I know that this researcher is not about to suffocate me to death in the, in this lab, so I don't need to panic about the fact that I'm having a little trouble breathing right now. And so they found these instinctive uh, patterns of brain activity in this, that how can we, okay, we know that this is good, and we know that the Navy SEALs and the adventure racers have this. How can we help other people have this? And it, So you're saying that adventure racers, Navy SEALs, were really good at adapting, handling this stress, and didn't their brains didn't react to the same level. And they thought maybe we could apply this to normal people. How does that work? Yeah, well, so and and for instance, even they even wanted to apply it to their, their, one of the things they're asking is how could like substance abusers tend to have the very opposite brain pattern. So how can we bring them up, or how can we help other people? And the intervention that they came up with uh, was an eight-week mindfulness training course that they've one that they've adapted specifically for uh, for Marines and Navy SEALs now, and also for athletes. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm sort of cautious about, about hyping mindfulness. It doesn't need help to be any more than it is. But it, it, they found that that uh, mindfulness training helped generate these, uh, helped move people more towards the elite, quote unquote, uh, brain patterns of being able to just accept the discomfort of, uh, of, of um, you know, whether it's heightened carbon dioxide or, or whatever. They were able to accept non-judgmentally the feelings of discomfort without panicking. And I think that's really it. We How do we ultimately... We're all probably, I mean, women probably are feeling can handle more pain than men. This is probably true. Let's be honest. But, um, I, or, or it's the same, <laughs> comma. And, uh, Alex but, is like, but I'm how not are, diving into that one. <laughs> but, uh, this is a long, long <laughs> David Epstein set this uh, fire off in our, our family. But the, the real, the issue here is that not that necessarily that our, we're all feeling different things, but that our brains are having really, different reactions to that same stimulus and that if I can desensitize or uncouple that emotional response or even just uncouple the the mechanism of, of perception then maybe I can I can be more comfortable and even handling I mean here, here's this example our daughter was she was she's in the seventh grade had a boyfriend this year for the first time which I was so down Ooh. with right here we go Juliet's like, like, where? (laughs) Threw him under the bus. And uh, Georgia at some point realized that she's like, man, I don't mind having a boyfriend. And she was just going to ghost him. And uh, we were like, hey, Uh. we were like, dude, you got to sit down and and protect him and have this. And she was like, she, we come back to school and how to go with Leo today. She's like, I didn't. And, and, And it's the same emotional fear response about being comfortable moving towards that uncomfortable. I mean, our brains are protective. We want to protect ourselves. And I think if we apply Georgia's, we literally just were like, you have, when you feel uncomfortable, go towards that feeling. We can take those, those similarities around training and behavior and really apply it to any discomfort in our life because the psychology of pain is, it does not endurance pain. It can be pain of work or, or stress from money. It, all of that has got to be the same psychological discomfort at the root level. Yeah, I I a hundred percent agree, and of course I I wish I could say that as someone who has you know been been pushing myself and running for forty years or whatever thirty five years, or I guess I'm not that old uh, twenty five years, um, <laughs> that 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 all, all all problems in my life are are now I'm, I'm I confidently don't avoid conflict or whatever that that that's not true like it's it's obviously a work in progress but I know that I'm in so many situations in life I'm just I'm, I'm I'm more comfortable with being uncomfortable because I've spent so much time being uncomfortable, you know, and whether that's sitting on a plane in a, you know, with some guy's seat jammed back into my knees or whatever. <laughs> and I hate it, but it's like, you know, is this worse than that interval session I did yesterday? Probably not. Just being meta about it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, it seems <laughs> when we're talking about people in pain, that just talking about it and accepting it as a normal and okay experience is, is part of the magic of helping people through that process. Um, so I just have a few yeah, little quick questions that I'm dying to ask you before we let you go. And the one of them is, what is the role of adrenaline in masking pain or does it mask pain? Yeah, I think, I, so I think the sort of fight or flight response, and I think it's more complicated than adrenaline. And I think there's all sorts of brain chemicals that that play a role. And I, I'd be lying if I said I, I knew exactly which ones or how or when or where, whether there's endorphins or endocannabinoids or adrenaline, but there's, there's, there's no doubt that, 
Um, there's something called stress-induced analgesia, which is you know basically fight or flight. You're, you're, you're the you're the the deer being chased by the lion, and if you fall and break your leg, you 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 know that you you should just keep running. And my one of my favorite studies of all time is uh, of the Oxford rowing team, uh, back maybe eight or nine years ago. They did a, this study where they inflict pain to measure their pain tolerance with a, a tourniquet. Then they have them do a workout on a rowing machine, and then they inflict pain. and And sure enough, exercise has increased their uh, their their pain tolerance. So presumably due to things like adrenaline and endorphins. Um, but then they do the same workout. So they, the first time they do it, or, or one of the times they do it, it's just at the athlete alone in a room on a rowing machine. Then the next time they take, they take the whole rowing crew and they line them up on rowing, uh, rowing machines next to each other. They do the same test, but this time the athletes are doing it with their teammates, the people with whom they've, they've trained for, you know, hours and hours and months and months and maybe years and years towards a common goal. And the increase in their pain tolerance after the workout is far greater. It's like twice as much. So to me, this is like a great illustration, both of the, of the sort of power of groups, but also of the fact that your perception of pain, your ability to moderate pain is, is totally influenced by brain chemicals. And those brain chemicals aren't just produced, aren't just a function of what your body is doing. They're also a function of what's going on in your mind, you know, your knowledge that your teammate is next to you. So, so this stuff is super important, even if you're not being chased by a lion. Right, you should be chased with your friends by a lion. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be chased by a lion, make sure you've got your friends group. with you. Noted. Um, before we let you go, I really want to delve into the question of whether you can train the brain. And I know you um, were, you know, participated in some experiments about brain training to different effect. But I just, if, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience trying to train your ba- brain and where you think it's going, if anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so do you have six hours maybe? Uh, no, <laughs> it's a, it's, 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 it's complicated. So the, 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 the brain training I did, I did, the basic idea was, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, these sort of Pac-Man type games where you sit and, and make your brain tired. And the idea was, well, if that makes your brain tired, do it every day for an hour and your brain's going to get, you know, stronger or more fatigue resistant. And so I did that for 12 weeks leading up to a marathon. Um, and basically I, you know, who knows, like, I was, it was just experiential. I have no idea what, whether it made a difference, but there are studies on this stuff. Uh, and they're pretty encouraging. They suggest that it works in sort of untrained people who have not already been doing high level athletic training. Um, my experience was that it was really time consuming and boring. Um, but, but, but to me that, so, so to me, the, the first message I take away from that stuff is that this is a kind of proof of principle that the brain matters and that the brain is trainable. I don't think that means that sitting at a computer and tapping buttons is going to be the way forward. That I don't think in 10 years we're, everyone's going to be doing the sort of thing that I did. I think that's more of a sort of lab novelty. I think where the, where and, and the, the more recent experiments that, that have been done don't involve someone just sitting at a computer. They involve people on a stationary bike exercising while doing the computer games. So already they're trying to under, realize that you need to integrate this into the into the the, the physical training. But I think the real future is is just sort of a more holistic awareness of uh like kelly was saying earlier about you know doing a a workout when you're mentally fatigued at the end of the day it's kind of like the equivalent of wearing a mental weighted vest you're you're getting some extra training it's just understanding that some and 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 and, hey like like getting in the sauna some workouts are about or or maybe should target mental fatigue resist your mental fatigue or your, your endurance, mental endurance. Um, that doesn't mean you're just going to sit there and only work on that. You're also going to be working out physically, but it's, it's more a question of understanding that this, that what these proof principle experiments that I've, that I've been writing about tell us is that this stuff matters. That, that this doesn't yet tell us the best way to do it. And I think, and I, I think whatever, where we end up in the future, I bet you'll be able to look back and say, well, so-and-so in 1950 was doing workouts like that. And that's true. Like great coaches have always intuitively been been pushing these uh, kinds of ideas. Uh, so a question of learning a little more systematically about how we can explicitly train the brain, but not necessarily uh, the sort of, uh, you know, uh, download an app to, to train your brain uh, while you're sitting on the subway or, or something like that. I love that. But you've just ruined my next week because I'm going to Hawaii next week to paddle a 
a 50K open ocean paddle between Molokai and Oahu. And uh, this week I was going to tell Julie I needed to start doing a little bit more alone time on the computer so she could handle the businesses and the family. I got to train, train my brain. And now she's like, you don't need to do that. So thanks. Thanks for that. It does sound very boring. Uh, I'll tell you what. Um, we, I feel like from just athlete nerd person picking up a 5K – how do I think about dosing my kids around being used to being uncomfortable, seeing that discomfort as a, as a part of our protection mechanism and being a human being all the way down to chronic pain. There's, there's so many great takeaways in your book that really, even Juliette and I, who felt like we, we live in this world and talk about these things all the time. We read this, like going back to our favorite movie and just reading the highlights over and over. It was fantastic. And I'm good. I just can't recommend this enough. And, I just want to thank you so much for giving us a taste of sort of understanding the complexities of how the brain and the body manage discomfort. It's been brilliant. And Kelly's right. I mean, we did just give a taste today because there is so much in your book that I would love to ask you about that we just don't have time for today. So well, thank well, you so much well, for well, maybe, giving us a few minutes. That's right. Maybe we can have you again. Well, this was uh, wonderful. I really uh, I have a lot of fun chewing over these topics with people who've who've thought about it and uh, as your sauna experience suggests uh, live it on a daily basis so uh, <laughs> i appreciate it and i'd love to come back anytime. we have not put the uh, salt bike in the ice tank yet but we will so that's just hang hang on we, we got you well alex thank you so much man and uh we really appreciate it and we'll again it, people this is this book is uh it's brilliant thank you so much all right thanks guys Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under mobilitywad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and MobilityWad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it!